It was August of 2022, and Radion Simon Palai, the acting editor of Toronto's Now magazine, tweeted out a definitive-sounding message. Here's what he wrote. This is it. This is the final masthead. This is the small team, owed 21 weeks of salary, who put together a spectacular issue dropping tomorrow night. I am so incredibly grateful to them all, and also to the people who gifted us their contributions to this issue. There's a lot to unpack in this tweet. You may be scratching your head and asking, wait, why weren't people at Now Magazine being paid for 21 weeks? Why were they printing their last issue? And what's happening with Now, Now? Spoiler alert, the magazine's story isn't over yet. For the past several months, the review's managing print editor, Anthony Milton, has been nose-deep into reporting on the behind-the-scenes events at Now Magazine, the decades-old alt-weekly arts magazine in Toronto. Spanning over five years, it's a story of twists and turns and reveals the lengths journalists are willing to go when they care so deeply about the work they do. Anthony gets into all of it in his long-form story for the spring 2023 issue of the Review of Journalism. We sat down with Anthony to find out how he unveiled five years of mismanagement, what challenges he faced, and how did he decide to wrap up his piece in time for print, even as the drama in the Now newsroom continues. Welcome back to the sixth season of Pull Quotes. Here's episode two. We're your hosts, Tara DeBoer, Tim Cook, and Silas LeBlanc. Tony, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much, Tara. So glad you're here with us. I'm super excited to talk about your story. But first, I just want you to give our listeners a sense of who you are and what your journalistic interests are. Okay, sure. So my name is Anthony Milton, uh, Tony for short. I'm a Master of Journalism student at Toronto Metropolitan University in my second year uh, doing the Review of Journalism class. My interests, I'm kind of all over the place. I've got a huge interest in long-form narrative journalism, but my background's also in data science and analysis. So uh, data journalism is something I'm really interested in as well. And I'm just trying to see how I can put those two things together in various different ways. Give us a little synopsis of the story that's going to be published in the review this spring that you worked on so closely for the last number of months. So the past several months, I've been working on a story about the past five years at uh, Now Magazine, which was an alt-weekly, is an alt-weekly in Toronto that's been going since, uh, I believe, 1981. And it's been a huge fixture of the city for many, many years. But recently it's been falling on hard times, which I suppose we'll get into, won't we? Absolutely. So I'm curious, so this has been going on for a number of years, but what initially sparked the inspiration for you to cover this story? So last summer, I was I knew that I had to do a big story for the review and I was scouting out ideas. And a colleague of mine at the time said she had been at now and was waiting on back wages from them because they just stopped paying it at a certain point. I went, well, what the hell? And yeah, it turns out it had been in the news around February of 2022. Uh, Now's parent company had essentially stopped paying most of its staff and pay was coming in increments and eventually just ran out altogether. And many staff were owed like, you know, 
several weeks and months worth of owed wages and I'm like, holy cow, you know, how does something like that happen? How do we get here? And also, how did that happen to now? It seemed like such a strong publication for so long. So then where did you go from there? Like, how do you even start this process of digging deep into this long story? Yeah, so initially, um, it was pretty simple. I basically went on Now's masthead and also used the Wayback Machine to get a sense of who used to be on Now's masthead and tracked down essentially as many of those people as I could for interviews. Actually, before that happened, I did a bit of secondary research to begin with, and I found that um, a couple people had already gone on the record about what happened. I think Norm Wilner, who was their film critic, had gone on Canada Land I want to say around September of 2022, but correct me on that. And he had basically just given his whole side of the story. And from that podcast alone, he gave me the sense that a new company had taken over. They had made perhaps some poor decisions. The pandemic had really impacted things. And they'd wound up in a situation where there were a lot of employees that were unpaid. And by the sounds of it, at least from you know the way Wilner was speaking, very frustrated with decisions that have been made and the situation that they found themselves in. And as, as I started looking around on Twitter, it was like, yep, turns out there was, you know, there were plenty of people that were very vocal. So I kind of knew how to reach out to. I think the first phone call I had was with uh, Rade and Simempole, who took over essentially as the acting managing director or managing editor of now after most people had jumped ship because it stopped paying them. And he kind of led the effort to put out the last print issue in August I think the work was done in August and it was published in September just in time for TIFF. And so he was kind of, you know, the last, he came across as the last man at the helm for that period of now. And so he, I think he was one of the first people I managed to get in touch with. Um, and he basically confirmed that, yep, there is totally a story there. So when I read this story, which is amazing and everyone should go read it, um, <laughs> the words that stand out to me are just like chaos and frustration and confusion and anger. Like all these things are just happening. And I think especially the way you wrote it, like that really came across well. So I'm wondering, how was it interviewing these sources who were so close to this? Like this was their job. They're devoting so much of their time to it. They weren't getting paid. What were those conversations like? And how did you go about them? Like I said, by the time that I came across the story, some of these folks had already been in the media already talking about this stuff. And they're media people already, right? So they kind of knew how it worked. I think in a lot of cases, you know, they had the chronology pretty well remembered. And so they were just able to walk me through it and be like, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It was outrageous, <laughs> you know, um, and that anger was was very clearly there. So those were difficult interviews. Most of these people, they they were happy to talk about their experiences. It kind of, I got the sense that many of them had done so already in a similar kind of capacity and just wanted to get the story out there and wanted to communicate their frustrations and just the injustice that they felt they'd suffered because the publication that they worked so hard for had gone under and also they weren't paid as they tried to, to save it from happening. So I know this took place over five years, so that's quite a long time and there was a lot to include. Could you speak to some of the challenges you faced covering this huge story with lots of voices, lots of opinions, and just a lot of different factors that led to this kind of failure, essentially? Totally. Yeah, I think one thing I should clarify at the outset is that when I started this, I thought it would be a two-year story. You know, I thought, okay, you know, now magazine gets sold by its owner, its longtime owner, Alice Klein, and I should say part owner. She founded it along with Michael Hollett and a few others. Accounts differ. Um, in 2016, Michael Hollett 
essentially stepped back from the business and Alice Klein wound up with the majority of his ownership shares. It's complicated, but she was essentially the, the owner and publisher for a fair few years. So I thought, okay, well, you know, it leaves Alice Klein's hands and then it goes into these completely new people. And then lo and behold, it, it falls apart. Okay, two years open and shut. But as I started to talk, talking to people, you know, even those who had plenty to say about the new owners, uh, the point they made was, you know, now did not start falling apart when Media Central bought it. The cracks were, were forming way, way beforehand. Uh, you have to go back further. I went, oh, crap. You know, because at this point, I was hearing, I was having people tell me like two years worth of events. And so, you know, I could barely hold all that stuff in my mind all at once. And then people are telling me, no, but you have to go get more. So I did. I, I interviewed some folks like uh, Jonathan Goldsby, who had left before the new owners took over, but were heavily involved um, in the union that represented now staff back in 2016 uh, through to, uh, you know, around 2017. It turns out there was some union struggles between the labor struggles between the, the labor represented by the union and management led by Alice Klein. The paper was struggling. The internet was really cutting into its advertising dollars that had sustained it for so long. It was atrophying. There were less and less people in its big office every day. It had a history where times were good for the most part of the magazine. And so the union could bargain year over year for better and better wages and protections and benefits and whatnot for its employees. And at a certain point, that started to go the other way. And that caused a lot of conflict where things were getting worse, actually. And they really had to bargain for the soul. So if we're thinking about in the context of there being a labor issue right now with the employees not getting paid, well, it turns out there were labor issues for much longer beforehand. And those kind of came down to the soul of the publication. There were debates about whether or not now could continue printing and continue being alive as early as, if I recall correctly, 2016. So essentially, right, like the labor issues and precarity at now started way before Media Central took over. And as soon as I started putting that together, I realized, okay, you know, it would not be telling the full story if I just laid this all on Media Central. That wouldn't be fair to them, for one thing. And also the reader has to understand that things have been difficult for a really long time and there are various factors at play. So was it your assumption that like things were all fine and going great until Media Central and then that kind of changed with your interviews or were you getting hints of that in your research? I already knew in Norm Wilner's uh, podcast, like he talks about them suffering a pay cut under their original management under Klein um, before Media Central took over because that's what was necessary to, to keep the company solvent, essentially. So I already sort of knew that. I think also like as I started talking to people, they just... It turned out there was just so much. There was just so much stuff going on prior to Media Central that I don't think I assumed everything was hunky-dory. I just, I didn't know enough to make an assumption like that. But as I learned more and more, it was like, okay, you know, there was a lot going on. And the arc of the story in my mind began to change. Did that send you back to like square one, essentially, where you felt like you had, to, you had a lot on the cutting board and you had to cut that down? Yeah. So I had a great editor, Tim Falconer, who <laughs> he, in my first draft, it was, you know, something like 5,000 words on just those two years. So just the media central era. And what he told me over and over again was stop clearing your throat, get to the point, <laughs> you know, cut the introductions. That's a great line. And, <laughs> yeah. And it stuck with me all through. And, you know, now as... As I find myself in positions editing other people's things, I can hear him whispering to me, cut the introductions, stop clearing your throat. And so, yeah, I mean, I wrote like a first draft that was just the media central stuff and it was way too long. And I went through it and I cut and I cut and I cut and I cut. 
And that started to open up space for me to also still have a 5,000 word story, but just covered a lot more basically. And I think eventually I just sat down and I rewrote pretty much the whole thing because, you know, it would have been too hodgepodge. The writing wouldn't have been consistent throughout had I taken a first draft that was about essentially a different story and then tacked on a bunch of introduction from like three years prior. So there was a point, I think, around my second draft where I just like rewrote it top to bottom. And that gave me a better sense of what was worth including from both eras. Is there anything you left out that you still wonder about that you should have included or that for some reason you chopped? I think there's there's a lot of anger out there. Things did not go well. People were left unpaid. Companies' aspirations did not come to fruition. It was... You know, even the most recent sale of now, which was also a big twist, turns out it didn't die, it got bought by someone else. There's even anger towards where the new owners are taking things. And so what I really thought about throughout this was that this is a story about a publication and what happened to it and told through the eyes and the experiences of people who are working there. I did not want to turn this into a shouting match between, Mm -hmm. you know, different factions who were angry at each other. There's a couple of points in there where I include some sharp comments, but I did so judiciously because what I wanted to show was that there were people who were there for a long time who had one particular way of doing things. And then there were newcomers who had different ways of doing things and different interests. And, you know, sometimes those groups didn't always see things the same way. They kind of baffled each other. And so I felt like that was an important thing to get across the sense that there was surprise and people were saying things that other people thought sounded ridiculous. That was important because it gets at the sense of people are, there are different attempts being made to take this publication in a direction where it can be sustainable, but those don't make everyone happy, right? And not everyone agrees. So in the cases where I include sharp comments to that degree, that's why I did it. But, you know, yeah, I heard, I heard terrible things about various different people in the course of this reporting. And I didn't put them in because this is not, that wasn't the point. Now you get to the end of your story, but, and you mentioned that this story is still being written. So it's still unfolding as recent as December and January, 2023. So I'm curious, what do you think is going to happen next? That's a super good question. And mm-hmm. I mean, the the sale of Now's digital assets specifically, to Gonez Media was a super late-breaking development. It happened after I had submitted the third draft of my story, and I was like, on Christmas vacation, (laughs) this happened. (laughs) And while it's good news for the brand, reading that story that morning, I went, oh, no, because I I had to go back, right? So, yeah, I did an amendment to the story and added uh, a quick note about what happened. What I think is going to happen, I mean, I'm not sure. What's interesting is there's already conflict about the direction that the new owners are taking it in. I recall seeing a story just recently that was accusing uh, them of writing a story that was written in a transphobic way because they had written something along the lines of, oh, I can't even remember, but it was like something about transgender people. What do you think about this? As though it was like inviting debate on a topic that, you know, impacted the humanity of trans people. And so there's already been, you know, accusations about that another thing i find interesting is that they just bought the digital assets so you know if you think about the long arc of now it was a paper for the longest time i mean that was the main product it was this uh broadsheet that was in physical boxes all around the city of toronto that was in every cafe 
And, you know, while you're waiting for your friend to get there, you'd flip through it and you'd find out like what was going on uh, that week. That was kind of its raison d'etre. And now, you know, through the Media Central years, there were clear efforts by the company to digitize it and, you know, bring it into the modern world of like social media influencers um, and sponsored content and contra deals and things like that. They were very digital based in the later half of 2021. I want to say they were working on launching a, a Substack like platform. They're working on launching a news aggregator. So there are all these attempts to bring now into the digital age and also use now's cachet to sell products that were very much digitally focused. So even before the sale, there was all these attempts to make now a, a digital brand. So now it's super interesting to see that Gonas Media just bought the digital stuff. You know, it looks like they're thinking along the same lines. Publishing a broadsheet paper just isn't doable anymore. So let's take the digital stuff. The real question there, though, is what does that do to the editorial? It was an alt weekly. It was alternative. It had this like really strong lefty kind of point of view. They were covering shows and concerts that the mainstream media just wouldn't bother with. And now it looks like it's being taken in a slightly different direction. It's got, it's one of, I think, perhaps the only black owned legacy media publication in the country now because Gonas Media is now in charge of it. And so perhaps there's going to be an editorial shift there. Perhaps that is good and representative of what, it, you know, of another community that hasn't, that's been underserved by, um, by the mainstream media. But it doesn't seem to be quite the same thing as what now was traditionally. And so there's more than likely going to be people who, who miss that. And, but then again, perhaps they'll carve out a new niche that is equally as important. It just seems a bit too soon to tell. So I'm wondering for you, as someone who's entering into the industry as a journalist, what did this reporting on this story and writing about it reveal to you about the industry and also journalists and their relationships to their work? I think <laughs> it kind of revealed that, you know, we're, we're vulnerable to be exploited and to exploit ourselves for the love of the kind of work that we're doing. This is something I heard a lot from the folks that had stayed on even after they'd stopped being paid, you know, reflecting on how on earth did they get me to do that? But it wasn't they got me to do that. It was I knew that if I did not stick around, things would fall apart. And at that point, you know, you're not working for you are working for a wage because you have to stay alive, but you're also working for a love of the publication. But that leaves you really vulnerable because that means that they can kind of do anything to you. You're going to stick around no matter what. All right. Well, even if you're not being paid, even if you're working 80 hours a week, even if you're not doing what we hired you to do anymore, I don't think management was under any of the owners. I don't think they were being, you know, explicitly cruel or really trying to take advantage of people. But at the end of the day, that's sort of what ends up happening by the logic of things. If the company runs out of money and it can ask its employees to stick around and keep it going and they're willing to do so for no pay, well, then they're going to be exploited one way or the other, even if it's by no one in particular. So you and think so, it could happen elsewhere? Absolutely. I think it happened to any one of us. Say the Toronto Star runs out of money tomorrow. Is that newsroom just going to shut down? Is everyone going to go home? I kind of doubt it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see now happening again. Because part of what let it happen was the fact that journalists value the work that they're doing over and above the wage they receive for doing it. They think it's important. And it is. But mm -hmm. that leaves them vulnerable. And so for me, going out into the world, you know, it's made me think very carefully about the kind of things that I value, but also the kind of jobs that I'm willing to get into, because I want to get, 
I want to go somewhere where my skills are really valuable and where I will definitely be respected for them because I know that myself personally, I would do this work no matter what. For sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a story of anger and frustration, but it's also a story about journalists caring, right? Like they're caring about what they're putting out there. They care about this, the name of the publication. And that's sort of what led to what happened. Yeah, there, there's a lot of love there. And I think, you know, if the story is negative, it's because that love just, you know, never got rewarded. Absolutely. Okay, Tony, what do you hope people get from reading this story? I hope they get a complete view. And I say that because, you know, for a story that's been going on for five years and has been happening in various episodes, what I really wanted to do here is tie it all together because various people who have been paying attention know that each of these individual events occurred. You know, you can piece it together from secondary research for the most part, but I wanted to like put it all in context and show that there is a story here, a story of a story of people working for the love of a publication and the ways in which that love is and is not rewarded. I wanted to show what it looks like when a media model slowly, slowly becomes less and less viable and what happens to the people who both want to try and make it sustainable and on the business side and to the people who are just trying to keep the work going on the journalism side. And yeah, just get across all those various things that were already there, but take that extra step and provide that extra value by stringing them all together into a narrative. Well, I can't wait for people to read it. You did an amazing job on this. I hope you can now like sigh a breath of relief. (laughs) Um, It was really great to talk to you about this. So thank you. Thanks so much, Tara. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Pull Quotes. We're your hosts, Tim Cook, Tara DeBoer, and Silas LeBlanc. Big thanks to our producer, Angela Glover, executive producer, Sonia Fata, and our fact checker, Stephanie DeVoli. See you next time.